and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home went right up to my room slept for a day and then I woke up the next morning I spray painted my wall no quitting me I remember you know there is no quitting me and I won't you know I won't give up thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy and whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have you are listening to intentional performers with brian levinson where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self as we talk with them The hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us. Often I get asked how I find the guests for the podcast. And some of them are friends. Some of them are relationships I've developed over the years. Some of them are friends of friends. So it's a wide range of people that come on the show. And I love meeting new people and I love going deeper with people that I already know. Today's guest is a little different. So I was working at uh, the house of one of my clients and on my way out, I saw a box of books. And I said to my client, I said, oh, what what's the deal with those books? And he said, well, uh, it's about this guy who is a Muslim. And after 9-11 happened, he was a victim of a hate crime in Dallas, Texas. And my ears immediately parked up and I was curious and I asked him more information and he gave me more information. And he told me about this guy, Race. And as he was talking, I saw someone walk across the kitchen and I said, is that Race? And he said, yes, he's staying with us this weekend and he's doing some stuff with my stepdad. And I said, well, can I go meet him? And from there, we had about a 30-minute conversation where Race told me a lot of his story. He told me a lot about how he saw the world. And in that moment, I said to him, you have to come on the podcast. And he happened to have some time because he was visiting Washington, D.C. And so we scheduled this podcast, which you're about to hear. And sometimes fate or serendipity or whatever you want to call it is one of the best gifts that we can have. And I feel so fortunate that A, uh, the client that I had started speaking up and talking about this man's story. And then B, that I had it in me to say, hey, go and introduce yourself. Go find out what he's about. I think so often we don't take that leap of faith or it's uncomfortable to go and ask somebody about themselves or to put ourselves out there. And this was one of those times where I was definitely rewarded for that action. So today we chat with Race Bouillon. Race has just 
an incredible story to tell. But what's amazing about race is not just what happened to him, but what he has done since. So he's going to share his story. He's going to share his upbringing. And I think that context is so important and so valuable as you listen and hear about this awful experience that race had to go through when he was a victim of a hate crime right after September 11th, living in the United States as a Muslim. He was victimized. A person came up to him and shot him in the face because of the way he looked uh, and without even really knowing his religious background. So an incredible story here. I think we are all blessed to A, have race living and being on this earth and B, uh, the compassion, the empathy, the way that he goes about his life and sees the world is a lesson that we can use day to day in our life. And so I don't want to get too into the weeds on what this conversation is about because I think it's much more powerful to have race tell his story. And so I'm not going to give you too much on race. All I'm going to tell you is make sure you stick around. Make sure you give this a listen. There is some background noise as we are recording this in my office, in my studio. Uh, the people next door were moving out, so they're banging and some vacuuming. But just try to focus and stay with the conversation. I promise it will be worth it. And I know that you are going to love this conversation. So since I know that, and since I know that I love this conversation, I'm going to ask you to share it. So share it on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever it is that you're social. Please share race's message. Uh, we are at a time in this country and in our society where we need more of these message to get messages to get out. And uh, we all have an obligation to spread this type of compassion, this type of love. I really believe it's the only way we can combat hate. So one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to spread messages that I believe in and race's message is as powerful a message as you'll hear on this podcast. So please share it on social media. Uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. Uh, I'll, I'll post some stuff about this conversation there. Also on Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And once again, to all those people that are spreading this podcast, I am forever grateful to you. We are growing. Uh, the numbers are showing it. And that is a testament to all of you. So I appreciate all the love that you're giving this podcast. And hopefully uh, we are giving you love right back so that we can spread uh, a lot of these concepts and ideas that these wonderful, brilliant, intentional people are spreading with the world. So without further ado, I can't explain to you how excited I am for you to hear from Race Bouillon. Race, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We just met a few days ago uh, by chance. Uh, one of the clients that I work with, uh, you happened to be at his house and I was walking out the door and I saw a big stack of books uh, and we'll certainly get to your book in a little bit. But then we just started chatting and I was like, oh gosh, you're the exact type of person I'm looking for for this podcast. So I'm just grateful that serendipitously or fate or whatever you want to call it, our paths crossed because I think you have a lot to share and I think the world benefits from your message. So I'm just super excited for us to go deep and to find out how you have decided to live your life, how you continue to live your life, and hopefully we can spread your message because I think it's a really worthwhile one. Uh, I want to start with finding out a little bit about your upbringing um, because I think that will set the table for an event in your life that dramatically or drastically changed your course. Uh, so give me some idea of what life was like for you as a kid and what little race was like uh, growing up. 
Well, uh, first of all, Brian, thank you so very much for inviting me to your podcast. It's a great honor to be here. Um, growing up as a little kid um, in the country of Bangladesh, uh, it was very interesting. Uh, I had a loving parents. Uh, I grew up in a big, in a large family, total uh, eight kids. I had uh, five brothers and three sisters total. Where were you in that order? I was, I'm number seven, lucky seven. Okay. So you have one sibling below you. Yes, one baby brother. Okay. And um, it was pretty interesting to grow up in a, in a big family where I learned, you know, chain of command, where I learned uh, to share my things with my other brothers and sisters. So chain of command, sharing, um, compassion, you have to be tolerant also because sometimes, you know, uh, it's not easy to take care of eight kids at the same time in the same way. So be respectful, be patient. So all those things I learned at a pretty young age. And, Were uh, those things coming from your parents? Were they coming from your experience with your siblings? Where, where? Both, both from parents and also from the other siblings as well. And um, I left home at age of 12. Uh, there is a, a military schools you know, uh, system which is one of the top-notch educational systems in, in, in Bangladesh. And uh, I wanted to go to that school, and but I had to compete with thousands of kids to get into that school. And when I was, finally, when I was enrolled, uh, my mother gave me a very good lesson. She said that you will be, you know, staying with a bunch of kids. And... Um, most of the kids will be friendly, but sometimes, you know, uh, some of the kids may not be that friendly with you. They may be mean to you in a situation like that. The first thing you should do is putting a zipper on your mouth. Control your tongue. That will de-escalate the situation right there. And if you take time, the kid who was mean to you would get a chance to, to, to think about that. I was so nasty to this kid, but he did not say anything back to me. So that will give the other kid a chance to come back to you. And if you don't fight back, the, the cycle of hurting each other stops right there. And if you could forgive, it will help you to move forward. And it will also give, the, give a chance to the other kid to come back to you to reconnect. And that was a very valuable lesson I learned at a very young age. It helped, it helped me a lot. I want to just interject. So you're... 12 years old, 11 years old? Uh, going to be 12 at the time, yes. And why were you going off to that school? Were your siblings going off to that? Did they already go to that school? Why, why were you specifically going to the school? Well, there's a story behind that. Um, my elder brother, who was a very good student, and uh, he wanted to go to that school. But uh, the final um, interview, he couldn't make it. And I saw the sadness on my mom's face that she was so hopeful that my brother would would, you know, would would make it. And at that time, I promised to myself that, you know what, I'll make my mom's happy, and also I will attend that school. And uh, I was in, in my fourth grade at that time, and I, I, I took this as a challenge that I will make it happen. So when I did that, uh, I saw my mom's face, that she was it all well laid, and she was very happy that the, her favorite kid could not make it, but the one next in the line did it. So it was a very full, a fulfilling for me and for my, my mom as well. There. It's amazing because you were motivated to make your mom proud. Absolutely. Right? So 
we talk about internal and external motivation in psychology. And a lot of times people say, well, internal motivation is better than external motivation. Do it because you want to do it. Do it because it'll be self-fulfilling. But they miss on this other power that external motivation has where other people can inspire you or nudge you or move you back inside to then be highly motivated. And for you, the pride of making your mom's face turn from sadness to happiness uh, resonated. So you go off to this school. Is it highly uh, academic? You said it was a military school. So I, in the U.S., we have military schools. So I have a vision of what that's like. But what's it like for you there? What, what's the school like from an academic standpoint? Is there also a military component? What's What are the dynamics it, it like? Is, uh, it is both a uh, military component and also very uh, highly successful, uh, you know, um, rate of, uh, you know, uh, kids coming out of coming out of this school uh, uh, joining the military and also uh, leading the country in in many ways for example in the science and technology and also um, in, um, in, in the military as well but it was a very well-rounded school where uh, only the top of the top can go to that school and um, you know come out as a leader uh, with lots of good qualities so it's an elite school exactly uh, financially how does that work is it Government subsidized. It's, it's, it's government subsidized, but um, the you know kids uh, came from all sorts of background: rich, poor, middle class, uh, very challenging you know uh, family background as well. So it's, it's basically if you have the talent, you are in there. Were you told from a young age that you were talented? This award was not mentioned to me directly, but. Um, there were situations where I was inspired by my parents and my brothers and sisters as well, that if you can see it, you can do it. What did your parents do? My father is to be an engineer, uh, uh, an electrical engineer who served for the Bangladesh government. Later on, he was transferred to Abu Dhabi, UAE, to build their infrastructure. Because back in the 70s, there were like a few thousand telephones in the entire country. So my dad, along with several engineers from India and Pakistan, um, build a build the telephone infrastructure of United Arab Emirates. It's no big deal there. He just he just helped build a bunch of stuff and right. well educated. Um, so so you had a little pipeline there of seeing somebody going out and creating something and making something happen. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. All right, I just want to get a sense of like how you became to be you, and so that's giving me a good insight. What other things were you interested in as a kid? Uh, any hobbies, anything that, that caught your interest? Well, I used to be a long runner. I loved, you know, uh, games and sports, uh, athletic events. Uh, before even going to the military school, I uh, I used to wake up very early in the morning, like around 4.35 a.m., and then just go for, a, you know, maybe a couple of miles running, um, me and a bunch of kids. And it was so safe to grow up in that neighborhood that parents would not be worrying that their kids, these you know, uh, nine, ten years old kids, are waking up in the morning and uh, going for running. It was a very safe environment, and I built that habit: waking up in the morning and, and you know, see the sunrise and you know, smell the fresh flower and run through the neighborhood and go to the in a highway just run beside the highway. So I grew up in a you know with with. Um, with all those activities as a young kid. And when I went to the military school, I already built up stamina that I'm a long runner. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always um, 
actively you know participating uh, all kinds of games in the sport like basketball volleyball soccer uh, hockey and also cross country three mile five mile cross country it was fascinating to get involved in sports and you know uh, athletics events and so at the military school did they have teams that you could compete on or absolutely so you competed in those in some of those um, that's a lot of sports you just listed some of those sports you competed at and yes uh, and and you enjoyed that aspect of the school as well every every month there would be some sorts of you know uh, interhouse competition like interhouse volleyball competition interhouse soccer competition and beside you know uh, you prepare yourself uh, to be a good student in the classroom you also have the we also had the opportunity to get involved with the games in sports and also improve of ourselves we had coach we had instructors who would train us to be good at some specific sports and athletic event so you put the zipper on your mouth you listen more than you talk uh are you very observant are you someone who likes to take things in like at that age where this message is delivered from your mom that sticks with you uh take me to like the type of person you are at 12 13 14 years old well i was always very observant uh, one of our chemistry teachers in the military school uh told us a very interesting story about uh, Japanese people. So he told us that the uh, the country Japan was completely destroyed during the World War II. But look at them, how they rebuilt the entire country, how they are so you know, um, rich, so successful uh, in, in the world right now because they work a lot, they talk less. Take it as a lesson that wherever you go, you, you learn first before you open your mouth. You observe how people behave, how people re- interact with each other. So learn first, then you open your mouth. You will do better job. So I took it as a good advice as well at a pretty young age that uh, be observing, learn, and then you interact with others. It's interesting because I had one of the best negotiators in the country come on. He teaches at Harvard Law School, and uh, he talks a lot about trying to walk in the other person's shoes, really ask questions, find out what they want. And a lot of people think that negotiation is just like getting exactly what you want. And he talked a lot about how that's not a good long play and it leads to a lack of success if you take that approach. Well, negotiation is not what you want exactly. Negotiation, you do something and you expect from the other person something. You come to a middle point. You give something, you take something. That is, a, you know, my, in my point of view, it's a perfect way of, you know, negotiating things. But if it is either my way or a highway, that's not negotiation. Yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard to get anywhere with that approach. Certainly in the long run, uh, it might work for you one time, but then you built, you, you know, you burn a bridge and now you don't have a relationship and then you develop a reputation for being someone that does that and nobody will ever want to negotiate with you again. Absolutely. Um, all right. So take me from the military school and it sounds like a pretty transformational, uh, experience for you where you learn a lot, you grow, you're surrounded by these brilliant people and, and teachers who start talking about Japan and all this other next level stuff. What's next for you after that? Well, the way these military schools, schools are designed to train these young kids, uh, to join the military in the future and lead the country. So. I grew up uh, in, an, in an environment where leadership quality was one of the core things that they taught us, that you need to lead wherever you are and also how to um, resolve, you know, conflicting situations, that you have, you, you have to have that kind of leadership skill 
to overcome conflict and also lead with example. So my childhood dream was to be an Air Force pilot. Why? Because when I used to see, you know, say goodbye to my dad, you know, keeping you know, living us at home, and went to the airport to say bye to him, I was always, I used to always think that how cool that would be if I, I were the pilot, and I'm dropping off my dad to Abu Dhabi. It would be so cool, and seeing all these aircraft at a pretty young age going to the airport, it. it it fascinated me, you know, to fly one of these, you know, complicated machine at a pretty young age. And I thought, and then when I saw, you know, uh, many times those Air Force jet flying over our house, I said that it would be even more fascinating to fly this machine, not that, the other machine I saw at the airport. So growing up as a kid, uh, I got hooked up with this flying thing. And uh, I thought, maybe I'll, I'll be an Air Force pilot. And, uh, you know, this is adventurous. This is cool, and uh, only and only handful a handful people can do such a, this you know this kind of extraordinary work. And um, Air Force officers, especially the pilots, were considered as elite of the elite in the country. So I thought maybe I'll. It was a challenge as well that I'm not signing up for something easy. I'm signing up for something tough. That's the second time you sort of hinted at I like going towards challenges. Yes. I like challenge because challenge is an opportunity. And once you face challenge and you overcome it, there is a huge, you know, fulfillment, huge, uh, you know, uh, feelings of accomplishment. The harder is the challenge, the tougher is the, is the feelings of, you know, fulfillment. Which is linked to happiness. And I think people Absolutely. don't realize there's actually good science around self-fulfillment. And uh, when we go towards challenges, it creates an opportunity for happiness, which when I ask people if they want to be happy, almost every person responds with a yes. I'm, I'm still waiting for people to respond with a no, but um, so awesome. So once again, there's an external motivator though. There's your dad and sort of, wow, how cool would it be if I was actually flying him in the back seat? So mom and dad clearly had a big impact on you uh, and also on your path. So mom is part of the reason why you work your butt off to get into this school. And then dad is part of the inspiration for what you're going to do once you're there. So you become a pilot? Right. And uh, so after graduating from the military school, I had to sit for several exams. Again, those are tough exams uh, to join the, join the Bangladesh Air Force. And uh, luckily, again, you know, I, I prepared myself the best I could. And after several months of vigorous, you know, uh, tests, um, written, oral, medical, several tests. I was finally saw myself going to the Air Force. And it was another um, a moment of uh, fulfillment that after all these challenges, I was able to, you know, get into the Air Force. And again, parents are very happy. Went to the Air Force, vigorous training for two and a half years. Sometime, you know, I mean, there were, there were uh, days... You know, lack of food, lack of drinks, just tough physical training. But in the back of my mind, I knew that, okay, this training will lead me to a better future. You know, uh, will lead me to uh, success, you know, uh, fulfillment, and also happiness. This is what I wanted to do. Did you do anything mentally to help you get through those challenges? Sounds like the military school, very challenging. Now you're going through flight programming school. 
anything, give us insight into your mentality and how you either any practices you did daily or anything you did mentally to uh, perform well. Well, definitely you have to be mentally tough to get into the military, first of all, and then, then go through this long and vigorous training for two and a half years. So what I did, I always told myself that I can do it, no matter how tough it is, and I will do it. So I kept telling myself every single day that no matter how tough it is, you know, this is designed to, uh, to test the tolerance, to test how far a human being, a human being can go. And also it is, it is designed to make me successful, not to, not to break me, to make me successful. So back of my mind, I knew that it was not this, this training, the hardship was not designed to destroy me. Rather, it is designed to take me to a next level. And if I give up seeing the hardship, facing the hardship, then I would never be able to go to that level. So was giving up a reality? Giving up was never an option for me. Because in the military school, I learned that if I ever wanted to be successful and impactful, if I ever fall, I should get right back up and try again. Giving up is not an option. Not even in the vision or you didn't, no. you didn't process that? No, giving up was not an option on the table. You have, to get in, you have to go and get it done. The Blue Angels, who are like our fighter pilots that are the most honored and they put on shows all over the country flying. I don't know. If you, have you ever seen the Blue Angels? I have seen that. Right? So pretty, great, pretty amazing stuff. They use visualization. So they will uh, sit around a table and actually go through their entire routine and imagine themselves flying their routine because there's only so many hours in a day that you can spend the money on flying these expensive planes. And so they, every morning, wake up early and they go through this process of visualizing themselves doing it. Did they teach you guys any of those sort of skills or tools um, or, or any other skills or tools that could help you once you were up in the air? Yes, uh, definitely. We had um, simulation. We also had pre-briefing where actually you don't fly in the sky, but you fly in the ground. Mm -hmm. You sit with your wingman or you sit with your you know, other you know, colleagues and kind of like go through what you are going to do in the sky, you do it on the ground. So that you have a pretty good understanding that what you'd be doing, you are just practicing making sure that you get the process well you know, uh, established in your brain so that you don't have to think about what is next. It will be an automatic process. So we were taught that as an Air Force pilot, flying, you don't have to think about flying once you go in the sky. Your, your, your theme should be, I'm here to fight. I'm not here to just fly a jet. Because mm -hmm. if you think about flying, and if you, if you keep thinking, okay, is, is my right wing is tilted to the right? Should I lift it correctly? Or is my nose a little up or nose a little down? Then you're, you'll be shot dead right there. You have to be, you have to think in a different way that I'm here physically, mentally fit to fight with an enemy. Otherwise, this job is not for you. Go back and drive some car. Athletes run through the same thing because they train, train, train. I'll just use a baseball pitcher. Um, you know, the idea of pitching versus throwing. And if you, if you start 
pitching and, and you're really thinking about everything you're trying to do mechanically, you're going to run into trouble. Whereas throwing, uh, you just, hey, throw the ball and trust in your training that you know what to do. Golf, same way. It's like if you're playing your swing, you're not playing the game. Um, so that notion of we train, we train, we train, we build these habits, we etch them into our mind and our body, and then we allow ourselves to use our instincts when we're performing uh, resonates with me completely. Absolutely. Um, keep moving that ball forward for me. So uh, what happens next? So you serve uh, in the military. How long is that process and, and what comes after that? The training was two and a half years. The first three months of the training was a joint venture tra- training with the, mil- the Army and Navy folks. So that was uh, first three months, and uh, it's kind of like you lose yourself. You, I didn't know what date was that, what month was that. It's just you were so soaked in the training, you have nothing in your life except just this routine task one after another one. So that's how first three months went, and then this entire two and a half years seems like went went pretty you know pretty fast, and then graduated as a pilot officer, and I was thinking that. I don't want to spend my entire life in this military environment. I spent six years in a military environment. I gave up my teenage, all the fun, all the dreams, because I wanted to get into this school. And now, another two and a half years gone from my life in this military environment. Do I really want to stay in this military environment for the rest of my life? So you're now 21. And then, sorry, and then how long did you... So you're in the um, school for for six years right and then you have two and a half years of training and then how long and then um after graduating as a pilot officer after serving almost six months then i was i started thinking what is next i had two dreams um the other dream was coming to united states for additional higher education and also see the world and i thought okay if i stay where did that dream come from a lot of our uh, ex-cadets from the military school um you know, uh, were attending universities in the U.S. And anytime they went back home, they also visited the military school campus and they shared their stories, how fascinating it is to go to American university and what they have learned so far. And their life is studied in the U.S. And that also attracted me because back home university, universities are full of political chaos. And, uh, you know, the fun part is not there that much. And also, I always attracted to use universities, you know, seeing movies, drama series. And I thought, if this senior brother can make it, maybe I can make it too. And another challenge, I can make it too. So after um, serving almost six months, I started feeling that maybe I have a different calling. This Air Force, this flying, I have done it. So maybe let me pursue the next dream. And I started thinking about America, that, you know, coming to USA for additional higher education. And I was pretty lucky. I asked for a release, and I was granted a voluntary release. So you come over to the States. Where do you go to college? I came to New York first and uh, attended a school uh, because I had a passion um, about computer science. I had a, I had a computer back home. I started learning about those those prehistoric programming D-Base, Foxboro, you know, uh, with my personal computer back home. So uh, after coming to U.S., I thought I'm going to pursue computer science as well. Instead of learning about micro, you know, Microsoft system engineering, Libre database programming. and then Go toward the hard stuff again, huh? Again, challenge. I mean, I <laughs> wanted to go because I love taking challenge. As I said, the challenge is not an obstacle. It's an opportunity for me. At that time, I had a friend, a senior friend uh, in Dallas, uh, Texas, 
who attended the same military school with me, three years senior to me, he invited me to visit Texas. And growing up in Bangladesh, I have seen lots of Western movies. <laughs> For a few dollars more, good, bad, the ugly. And I, I took his invitation and said, well, sure, I will be visiting. I would love to visit uh, Texas and went to Texas and visit a couple of times. I was blown away. By what? The weather was warm, like back home. <laughs> I was living in a closet in New York City, seeing the, this gigantic house in Texas. Highways are pretty straight and, uh, you know, beautiful highways. And you can drive, you know, a nice car. You can live in a nice house. Tuition fee was much cheaper than New York City. And um, weather-wise was pretty, pretty cool. I like that. It's cool that you, uh, like, your introduction to the United States is New York City, which is definitely not the rest of the United States. Although I think a lot of people that visit are like, oh, this is the United States. And then they go to these other cities. They're like, oh, wait, they're not all like New York. And then Texas, which in some ways is its own country, yes. um, <laughs> which we don't need to get into in too much detail. I had someone tell me yesterday who's from Houston. He said, you know, if you're from Texas – you don't, you go back there. That's, that's your home. And if you marry a Texan, you're staying in Texas. Um, <laughs> and I think Californians are the same way in a different, completely different capacity. Um, so you're down in Texas and you're still pursuing computer engineering, um, and, and learning systems and operations and that sort of stuff. No, I took a break after, after, uh, moving to Texas because my friend there, you know, he and his brother was involved in, gas station business so he offered me you're in texas and involved in gas station business shocking so he 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 actually he offered me that if you move to texas um you can work with us as a working partner okay and i thought that wow that would be a you know a fascinating opportunity for me that attending school at the same time working as a working partner in gas station so it's a pretty lucrative proposal so i took it and um uh, September, uh, May to May two thousand one, I moved to Texas. Okay, right before four months of nine eleven. All right, so take me to nine eleven. And one of the things we haven't talked about is you're a Muslim. Uh, you're a practicing Muslim. Um, how much was your that a part of your upbringing? Um, where does that come from? Um, and then, uh, you know, if you're able to, I'd like you to share nine eleven and and what happens after that. Well, faith played a big role in my upbringing because I grew up in a very um, spiritual and practicing Muslim family. Both my parents were very uh, practicing and spiritual, so it it shaped my life, and you know, in Islamic, uh, with Islamic teachings as well. And um, so, after coming to Texas, um, even after coming to USA, you know. Um, the faith didn't disappear from my life. Faith was still a big part of my life. And after uh, starting this uh, this gas station business, uh, I did my best to to uh, pray as many times as possible. Because sometimes once you're in a in a retail business, customer facing, it's hard to take time off and then go and pray. But I, educate people because some people may not know um, what it means to be a practicing Muslim. Uh, and I think it's helpful for them to understand that, especially in in a state. I have no idea what the percentages of Muslims in in, in Texas are, but I, you know I think there are some places in the U.S. where maybe you can go and you're surrounded by people that are the same as you. 
I, I would imagine right. now you're in Texas and you, there may be some, but so explain to people what that looks like. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a very good point. Um, there are five pillars in Islam. Uh, first one is faith, that you believe in one God. And then second one is your prayer, praying five times a day. Third is charity, that you know, you have to give a certain percentage of your income to the poor, needy, and vulnerable. Fourth is your uh, uh, fasting. In the month of Ramadan, we fast. All the Muslims fast for 30 days from sunrise to sunset. No food, no drinks, nothing at all. It's a month of self-purification. You just not only deprive yourself from food and drinks, but it also self-cleansing. That you you ask for forgiveness, you pray, you ask for guidance, you ask for strength to do the right things, see the right thing. So there's number of, uh, four, the fasting of, of uh, the month of Ramadan. And the fifth pillar is, is the pilgrimage. If you're financially and uh, physically capable of going to Mecca to perform this pilgrimage, then it is mandatory for you. But if you're not financially and physically able to do that, it's not mandatory. So for a Muslim, for a practicing Muslim, the only thing is the, the two things we do on a regular basis is your faith. You always believe in one God and all the messengers and the angels and the, the, uh, uh, the, the final judgment day. And uh, you pray five times. That is two things is constant every single day. Mandatory if you're going to practice. That's, that's ex- expectation. Right. If five times prayer is mandatory and the faith part, you don't have to do anything. But you just, you, just, you believe that this is what, you know, um, it's your faith. So working in a gas station was, didn't give me the opportunity to pray five times on time. But I did my best, best to pray as many times as I could. And then coming home at night, uh, just cover it up. Whatever I have missed that day, prayed. And there are some exceptions. If you cannot pray, there is an option you can pray later to cover it up. Got it. So you're there four months before 9-11 happens. 9-11 happens. What's that like for you? Can you just take me to that day? Uh, and, and you're watching on TV like uh, most of the world. And uh, if you could just sort of play that back, uh, I, I would love to just walk in your shoes as you experience that. Right. Um, me and my friend, we started this gas station with lots of hopes and inspiration because we are young and this is our business. We'll take it to the next level the best we can. And I enjoyed very much because, you know, where I came from, I never had an opportunity to to serve customers. So this gas station gave me the opportunity to interact with locals, get to know them, their culture, you know, where they come from. I was always observant. At the same time, I always engaged myself with a customer in a short conversation just to understand that, okay, who is this person? What is his cultural background? Observing, listening, listening. zipper. <laughs> zipper as well. When it is needed, put the zipper, put the zipper. But most of the time is listening and learning, you know. And uh, so it was, it, it was quite a fun to work in a gas station, dealing with kids and you know, lots of different kinds of people. Uh, enjoyed very much. Then uh, 9-11 happened. It was, I remember still, it was Tuesday, September 11, 2001. And that was my off day. So I woke up in the morning and uh, I saw the first, you know, first tower was hit. And I thought that was a, you know, movie trailer. Sometimes Hollywood makes this kind of, you know, sci-fi, science fiction, you know, movie. And then when I saw the, the next plane hit the tower, I still, I still couldn't believe that 
it was happening in reality. I thought still it's a part of a movie trailer. Then I sat in front of the TV, kept watching the news, and then I realized that yes, it is not a movie trailer. It is hap it happened. And I could not believe I was, my eyes were full of tears and I could not believe, you know, seeing the, the, the amount of pain and suffering, seeing, amount, seeing the amount of evil, you know, happened that day. Because I just left New York a few months before. That was my first home in the U.S. There's a huge soft corner for New York for me. And uh, I couldn't process. It was pretty heartbreaking. I was angry at the same time as well that who these people did this heinous crime to, to, you know, to this beautiful city, to the people of New York. And it was shocking. I was sad. I was angry as well. And when I heard that a group of misguided so-called Muslim did this heinous crime, I fear of backlash that there might be some sorts of hate crimes, you know, uh, I mean, uh, violence against Muslims. But then I told myself that I had nothing to do with that. I'm not part of that. And uh, I didn't do anything wrong to anyone, even in Dallas. So why should I be afraid? But in course of time, when I heard some, you know, uh, violence took place against Muslims or even from, you know, people like brown skin or, you know, South Asians, I I felt little, uh, I felt, you know, very afraid that uh, I need to be careful. And then within four days, 9-11, a Muslim store clerk was murdered, not from not too far from our gas station, and FBI was investi investigating the case, and that gave me, uh, you know, uh, uh, something to think seriously that uh, it happened not too far from where I was. Then I should be very careful. The person who did that in this area, and I'm brown, I'm Muslim, and working in a gas station which is one of the most vulnerable uh, business place in the U.S. And uh, I told the owner that you need to increase security. I don't want to work alone by myself in the evening shift. You need to add more people. But he did not listen to that. So fearful, vulnerable, and vigilant is where you're at in that moment. Um, just being in the U.S. during that time, and being profiled as such uh, is is a scary time to be in the U.S. Absolutely. I mean, many times customer came to the gas station very angry. They said a lot of uh, bad things about foreigners, about Muslims. And I understood their anger when and where they're coming from. I totally understand that. And since I was angry too, but I couldn't find ways to take my anger or express my anger to others because I thought, you know, I have to keep, I have to put a zipper in my mouth. I cannot express my anger because it is people like me who did this crime. So who do I share my, my feeling? So kept my emotion in control and I understood where they were coming from. So instead of engaging in a, in a conversation, I let it go. Just listen, didn't respond. Zipper is now in full effect. Absolutely. I, uh, it's amazing because I was in high school living right outside Washington, D.C. So uh, it's such an interesting thing to talk to different people about their experience and what that was like for them when it happened. But I think even after is actually a more interesting conversation because when it happens, it's just pure raw emotion. Um, but what happens following that, I think for a lot of people that didn't look like you, that didn't practice 
uh, your faith. It was this patriotism that was beautiful. It was this, we're proud to be Americans. And all of a sudden the flags started to be waved. People started putting their flags outside in Texas. It probably was there all, the whole time, but in other parts of the country where I think maybe people were ashamed in some ways to be American, there was this rejuvenation of like, no, we stand up for ourselves. We've got our brothers in New York. We have your back in DC at the Pentagon. We, you know, we're proud to be American so much so that I remember my senior year of high school, which was about uh, you know a couple months after 9-11, I would say six, seven months later, me and my friends, we had like a photo shoot for our class and we were like, yeah, let's put the American flag in it, which would have never crossed our mind pre-9-11. But you forget that for other people, it's this time of maybe shame or time of like you know, uh, now I have to be more vigilant and careful. And I think we often forget about these uh, these big moments that happen and how it affects different people different ways. Um, and I think it's an important thing for us all to remember is that there are always, um, you know, there's always nuance. Nothing is ever black and white. There's Absolutely. always a whole lot of color that comes into events. Um, you know, just last night, we both attended the ADL concert, which is this beautiful uh, movement to stop hate. But outside, there are people protesting um, the concert and saying that the ADL, rep, you know, recognizes Israel and Israel is doing unjust things to Palestinians. And there is always context to everything. Absolutely. Uh, even when we are celebrating, there is someone else who might be feeling like they're a victim. When we are being victimized, someone else may not be. Um, so I think your story is important to hear. And I think for a lot of Muslims, it's important to hear what that experience was like for them after. And the news covered a decent amount of it. And when we had bad things happening at mosques, there's certainly a part of that. Uh, in the narrative, but I think it gets trumped rightfully or wrongfully by this vision of airplanes hitting towers and this massive moment that everyone remembers. Um, so your story is fascinating. All right, take me to this day uh, and just walk me through this day that uh, I'm sure is tough for you to talk about. Um, so feel free to tell as much or as little as possible. Um, and I know it will probably open up some wounds, but um, you know I, I think it's important to hear because it's a massive part of your story. Sure, I would love to share as much, you know, as much uh, or time permits. Um, so after 9-11, uh, I, was, I was pretty afraid after you know, a lot of customers uh, came to the store angry and um, uh, expressing their anger towards Muslims, immigrants, especially people like me. And, uh, and especially after uh, Mr. Walker Hassan, who was shot and killed on September 15th, not too far from our store. Um, and then... The owner didn't want to increase the security. It was raining since morning. Business was pretty slow. Around 12.30 p.m., a customer walked in wearing a bandana, sunglasses, and a baseball cap, holding a sort of double-barrel shotgun pointing at my face. And uh, from my previous robbery experience, I thought it would be another robbery. So I opened the cash register and offered him money right away. And I said, please do not shoot me. But he wasn't looking at the money, though. His gaze remained fixed. And then he asked me, what are you from? And as soon as he asked me that question, I realized he is not here for the money. He's here for me. 
And I was confused. I was terrified that why he's asking me this question. And I just said, uh, excuse me. And I couldn't even finish saying, excuse me. He pulled the trigger from point blank range. And I felt it first, like a million bees were stinging my face. And then I heard the explosion, the big sound. And I couldn't believe he actually shot me. I looked down to the floor and saw blood pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. Frantically and instinctively, I placed both hands on my head, thinking I had to keep my brain from spilling out. And I remember screaming, Mom, top of my voice. And then noticed the gunman still standing there. And my military training kicked in right there, that if I stand like a big target, he would shoot me again. But if I fall on the ground, if, if, then perhaps he will, he will think he would think that I am, you know, uh, I have died. And that's what I did. I fell to the floor, and after a few seconds, he left the store. I stood up and I grabbed the phone, but I was shaking so badly that I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying right now. What can I do? What is the best thing to do right now? Thinking, and then I couldn't dial nine one one, and I thought. If I even pass out, let it be the, let it be outside of the gas station so that people could see me. So I ran to the barbershop next door, and three men inside looked at me in horror, and assuming the gunman was right behind me, scrambled to escape out back. I grabbed one of them and screamed, Please call 911. I am dying, and I don't want to die today. And when he called 911, I caught myself in the mirror. And the image reflected back was gruesome, like something straight out of a horror movie. And I, and I thought, a few minutes before, I had been a healthy, smiley, smiling young man. And in an instant, it takes to pull the trigger. I had become disfigured, losing blood and strength rapidly, fighting to stay awake, fighting to stay alive. And I thought I should not just sit down on the floor for ambulance. I should keep myself you know, uh, active and also positive that, yes, even though I'm afraid of dying right now, but I should not let that fear consume me confl- completely. Rather, I should stay positive and, you know, praying God and, and thinking that he will give me a chance. Things will be okay. I came to the parking lot and started running from one side to the other because I didn't know which way ambulance would arrive. And I wanted to save time. So what I did, I opened my shirt I took off my shoes, just my shorts. I had a baseball cap, so I, I, I took it off. Because I kept myself ready for the treatment so that they don't have to cut my shirts, cut my pants. I'm ready to, to operate right there. How are, you, uh, how are you able to process that information in such shock? Is it military? You think the mili- it's the military stuff that you had been trained on? I think it's, it's a couple of things, the military training and also the desire to live, mm. the time pressure that if what I can do now, that will help later, you know, uh, keeping myself ready for the paramedics to start the treatment, whatever, what is the right thing to do at that moment? Right thing was stay positive, stay focused, stay and do the right thing so that it will help in the future and also the time would not be wasted and what are the people around you saying it was since it was raining there were less people you know so you're by yourself i was by myself just running in the parking lot and uh 
reciting from the Holy Quran and ask, asking God that please give me a chance. It is too early to leave this world and uh, I have so many dreams, I have so many you know, challenges I wanted to overcome and I wanted to contribute to this world. Uh, but if you take me today, nothing will, you know, all those dreams will remain as a dream and uh, you know, it is too early to leave. So begging God for giving me another chance, reciting from the Quran, doing the next right thing and also saving time for the next action. So what happens next? The ambulance arrived and as soon as I saw the ambulance, I started running towards it. Again, saving time. I didn't want them to come with a stretcher and then pick me up. Rather, what I could do at that time, that's what I did. Ran towards the ambulance, come to the back instead of coming to the front. Stayed at the back, they opened the door, they took me in and they told me, even though it's, it's, it's funny, but that was, I think, the right um, uh, right word to use. They said, we never we never saw things like these. They, uh, anytime we, whenever we went, um, you know, when we got called like that, somebody was shot, we always went with a stretcher to pick up a body, dead or alive, from the ground. But in this case, we were so surprised to see you running like a chicken with a head cut off. Mm. Blood was flowing and I was running as fast as I could. So it was a pretty intense moment for me and for them as well. And um, on my way to the hospital, they started you know, putting IVs and uh, different kinds of you know, uh, electrical wires here and there. And uh, at that time, slowly I began losing consciousness slowly. And uh, images of my mother, father, my siblings, and my fiance appeared before my eyes. And then a graveyard. And I felt my time was up. And that's why I, I was seeing their beautiful faces. And at any moment, I would be gone from this world. It was terrifying, you know, uh, that there is nothing I can do to make a difference. I'm dying. And... Uh, I even cannot say goodbye to my loved ones. I would never see them again. I never thought of ending my life in this way. But I came to this country with hope, with dream. I quit my job in the Air Force to do something bigger and better. But now this is the ending. I said, God, I don't want to end my life this way. You are the only one who can give me a chance, who can change this situation. You have the full power and I'm begging I'm begging you, give me a chance. And I promise, if you give me a second chance, if you give me a chance to live, I would dedicate my life for others, especially for the poor, needy, the vulnerable. But please give me a chance. I was taken to the hospital. And uh, finally, five hours after I was shot, I finally lost consciousness and was put on life support. Mm. And the next thing I remembered, asking where am I? Because I thought I died. From this gunshot, I my jaw was completely stuck, and um, at least two pillars went through my right eye. So I couldn't open my eyes. I could not see anything. I could not, you know, say anything. So I thought perhaps I died, and anxiously waited to hear something. And that few seconds were very terrifying because I didn't know what I would, what I would hear. That yes, you died. We're the angels coming to confront you, or yes, you're in the hospital. So that few moments was very terrifying. And then when I heard, good morning, Mr. Bhuyan, you're in the hospital. 
ah, such a you know happy moment that I'm still alive. Because I remember that some time ago I I was begging for a, for a chance to live, and now I'm still alive. So it was one of the most beautiful moment in my entire life. Waking up that morning in the hospital and uh, knowing that. I haven't gone from this world. My eyes are full of tears, not from the pain, but from the joy that I'm still alive. But the joy didn't last long. It's amazing. Take me to the next chapter. Um, so you survive this awful event. Um, what happens next? You you pledge to God that you're going to serve. Um, <laughs> it's a big pledge. Uh, what happens after that? Well, even though I was very happy that I got, I, you know, uh, I got my life back, but that happiness didn't last long. Within few hours, the hospital, which was private and expensive, and I did not have health insurance at that time, discharged me, and expected I would arrange follow-up medical treatments at my own. So the second part of my American nightmare just began. They discharged me, and. Uh, it was. It put me through a lot of mental, psychological, physical, emotional challenges, one after another one. But I did not learn how to give up. As a result of this shooting, I received more than three dozen bullet fragments, and I'm still carrying more than you know uh, more than 35. Right side of my face and skull was peppered with bullet fragments, and still it is you know like that. Uh, I lost vision in one eye. I lost my job my sense of security, uh, I lost my fiance, but gained more than $60,000 in medical bills, and I reached out to Red Cross for help, but after several weeks of back and forth conversation, Red Cross told me I was qualified only one week's worth of groceries, mm. and when my father heard what had happened to me, he suffered a stroke, but thankfully survived. Uh, so moving forward, rock bottom. Rock bottom, absolutely rock bottom. And you go from like, I mean, your story up until that point, for lack of a better phrase, is the American dream and is universal dream. I mean, it's it sounds like all the stars are aligned. You're in a relationship. You've got a job. You've got education. You've got military experience. You've got family. Uh, and your world is just just turned everything destroyed right there this one single incident completely destroyed my entire life and i was thinking what is next Should, do i go back and uh when my father heard what had happened to me he suffered a stroke but thankfully survived uh at that time i i kept thinking should i go back to my birth country where i came from and feel sorry for the rest of my life that i went to the u.s and I came back as a victim of a hate crime. Or should I stay back, face the harsh reality, and rebuild it? Because I, lo I love challenge. I didn't, I didn't learn how to give up. It would have been so much easier for you to say, forget this country. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you're coming back into a world where there's still Islamophobia. There's still, you know, it's still a big part of what's going on in the US. Uh, so the easy move there is to say I'm out, right? Like Absolutely. That would be the, the easiest thing to do to go back. But I did not learn how to give up. And I should not give up. So I thought, even though I didn't have any love done in the US, it is a like a hostile territory for me. 
and just got freshly wounded from a gunshot. I mean, I had all the negative things ahead of me, but there was a hope and I had my dreams and my faith in God. These three things kept me moving forward that no matter how tough is the, and how tough is life, you know, it's like the military, you know, training that yes, there will be two and a half years vigorous training full of pain and suffering, but there is a hope after two and a half years that I will be, I will graduate as a pilot officer and there is a good future for me. So I thought, I took it as a training as well that I need to be extremely tough, but I also believe that there's a verse in the Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 286, uh, where it says that God will never place a burden on a soul that it cannot bear. That means what? That God knows God knows what we go through on a regular basis and he does not put anything on our shoulder that we cannot bear. Human beings can tolerate many unthinkable burdens even when initially they feel they can't. They just can't possibly take it anymore, yet they live through it. So it's one thing to tolerate something. Uh, like I use this phrase, and people that have listened to the podcast have heard me say it, so sorry to people that are listening. But uh, there's victims, survivors, and thrivers. Victims say, why me? Survivors say, it is what it is. It happened. They accept it. And then thrivers say, watch this. And so I understand how the Quran would say, you can handle this race. You know, you're, God's put this. You can handle it. All right, so you can survive it. Um, first of all, that's a massive step to go from victim, why me, which a lot of people can stay in, and rightfully so, to survivor and acceptance, and it is what it is. But what you do next is a watch this moment. It is, all right, this happened and what I'm going to do about it. So walk people through what you decide to do next. First of all, I didn't want to see myself as a victim. Mm. That's not who I am. The victim thing, it was already gone from my... When? Right after uh, I was kicked out from hospital, I thought, okay, now I have to build, rebuild my life in this country at my own. So if I think myself as a victim, I would never be able to overcome. I would never be able to rebuild my life in this country because I always, I would be thinking, I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I cannot go farther. I have to act as a survivor right now. And I thought myself that I would like to use this rock bottom as a, as a great foundation to learn and grow in this, in this foreign country. And the, the greatness about, the good thing about this country is there are, lot, there are lots of tools available. Some people, they take it as a granted. Some people, they use it to go up. And I thought there are tools available, even though there is no lockdown in this country, but the tools are available. I can use it and it, to rebuild my life. And I wanted to be a thriver, not just a survivor. And I thought I will stay back, face the harsh reality, move forward, and they will come when I would look back and I would thought I did the right thing staying back in this country and rebuild my life. And the promise I had with God that if you give me a chance to do something, if you give me a chance to live, I would do good things for others. And I was able to keep, keep that promise. So stayed back. Um, Went to school and uh, also working at restaurants for $2.13 per hour. Wow. Which, uh, after taxes, totaled from $0.25 cents to a couple of bucks, bucks per week in, in paycheck. And uh, started, you know, improving my serving skill. I never served in restaurant. And uh, 
from having no knowledge about alcohol uh, to becoming the highest alcohol seller. It was a challenge for me. I had to learn about alcohol, even though I never drank alcohol. I never smoked. But to survive, I had to learn more about alcohol. And uh, many times I became the highest alcohol seller and learning to talk like Texans, like y'all come back with your wife and try some Texas RST to, to try some bond with the locals. So I had to reinvent myself from airman to store clerk to uh, uh, waiter to survive. And uh, human beings are capable of doing that, to transform themselves. We have the power. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes situation pushes us to, you know, to reinvent ourselves. And that is what exactly I did to reinvent myself from one to the other to the other to survive and uh, learn a lot of things, improved my speaking skill, in, uh, my knowledge about American people, culture, working in restaurant for three and a half years. So you do what you need to do to exactly. survive, to get a paycheck. You learn different skills. You acquire new ways of talking, uh, the environment, figure out how to bond with that environment. Um, walk me through the relationship with the shooter. Um, cause I think this to me, um, is remarkable. Well, um, uh, the person who shot me, his name is Mark Stroman, uh, a white supremacist who was in a shooting rampage, uh, killing Muslims in Dallas, Texas after September 11 terrorist attacks. Um, he killed Mr. Hassan on September 15th. He shot me on September 21st and he killed another, um, another man named Vasudev Patel from India on October 4th. And after that, he was arrested and he claimed he was hunting Arabs, but not one of his three victims was Middle East, I mean, was Middle Eastern. And, uh, after his arrest, he said what he did, uh, most Americans who wanted to do, they just didn't have the guts. He claimed himself a true American, a patriot, and uh, he should be given medal for his action. He blamed me and my kind for 9-11, and he said America was no place for Muslims until I started a campaign to try to save his life from death row. Well, so <laughs> what, why, what are you, what are you doing there? Like, Look, I, I get it. You're you're a great guy, great human. I'm gonna start a campaign to save his life. That's that's completely different. Well, it did not happen right away. Uh, it took time because after this incident happened to me, I went through a healing process where I grew mentally, emotionally, you know, uh, physically as well. And uh, uh, in 2009, I went to Mecca for a Muslim religious pilgrimage. The fifth pillar we talked about at the beginning of this talk, that if you're financially and physically able to do that, then it is mandatory for you. You were financially and physically able at that point? By 2009, I I was. Okay. Because uh, even though I worked in a restaurant for three and a half years, uh, I went to school where I learned about computer programming, database design, database administration, all kinds of things. And... Uh, uh, finally, I was able to get a good IT job and a quit restaurant. Uh, I, I wanted to get into the corporate. I wanted to get into the IT in the U.S. So finally, that dream came true through hard work, which was a part of my American dream as well. 
So by 2009, I was financially uh, solvent and uh, all the personal debt I had, I was able to, you know, uh, get rid of that. Matter of fact, if I add one more thing to, you know, uh, after this incident uh, happened to me, my bank account was closed mm. because the owner of the gas station gave me a couple of checks which bounced back and in, instead of punishing them, the Bank of America punished me and they closed my account. They said, there's some suspicious activities going on in your account, so we are closing your bank account. I said that you are re-victimizing me. I had nothing to do with this with this check. I'm sorry. During all of this, it's a public event. The other two people that he shot are dead, correct? Right. You survive. Was there any nonprofit? Was there any support? No one came to help in any way? Well, that time, the whole country was uh, united, uh, which was a very good thing, uh, to support the victim of 9-11 in mm. New York City, you know, Pentagon and Pennsylvania. But we, the hate crime victims... Uh, you got no support? There's not even like... I mean, like, it's just... It's... it's, uh, it's I can't even put it into words for me as an American that that... That that wasn't there. Well, we were treated like a stepchild at that at that time because, you know, even though we were the victim of nine eleven hate crimes, uh, again, I'm not complaining, but I'm saying that you know we, I understand. You know, people were focusing on the bigger cause, bigger issues, and uh, you know there wasn't enough time or there wasn't enough uh, you know uh, resource allocated for the hate crime victims at that time, and. Uh, which was shocking, which was heartbreaking, but we survived. And uh, so the Bank of America closed my account. My, I had a credit card, and I told them my situation. is if you, if you do not close my account, when I get financially solvent, I will pay you back. But give me six months to one year time, and I promise I will pay you back. It was a couple of hundred bucks. You know, I owe them. But they closed my credit card, closed my bank account, which put me into another bigger situation. I would... I couldn't, op- re- I couldn't open a bank account with any other banks. Anywhere I went, they said, oh, there is a flag. Your account got closed with so-and-so bank. We can open your bank account. And it was another disaster that you cannot survive in this country without having a bank account or a driver's license. So long story short, so I was able to go back to Bank of America again I, because I believe in giving second chance. Even though they you know, unjustly closed my bank account, but in 2010, I went back to Bank of America, opened my bank account, and uh, did. since then, they're treating me as a platinum customer, giving me one of the highest level, because now they see money is coming to my bank account. Right, so you, this is where I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> so you don't have to go back to Bank of America. You can go to Wells Fargo, Citibank, whatever. But once you become financially stable, you want to go back to Bank of America because, because I believe Nelson Mandela's theory. If you wanna, if you wanna make a positive impact in this world, you have to find ways to work with your enemies. You just cannot hate your enemy, and you could, and you, you think that you know this world would be a better place because you are not working with your enemy. You should find ways to work with the people they put you down or they you know cause pain and suffering in your life. Otherwise, we couldn't move forward. So I thought that is the right thing to do. Let's go back to Bank of America. And I did that. 
And you realize how big time that is, though. It's one thing to say it, like Gandhi, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. You know, I think we all like these quotes. It's a whole nother thing to live it. It's a whole nother thing to, like, be a victim and then go toward the people that victimized you. Um, and, and that's why, I mean, I'm going to go back to this. Like, so this guy is in jail. He's on death row. Is that, is that like? Right. He was in death row. And um, the reason I went back to Bank of America, because what they did to me, which was wrong, unless I, unless I find ways to reconnect with them and talk about the things they did to me, would not be able to solve the problem. So you went back with the idea that this could maybe help others that are in my situation in the future. Exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. So same thing with my with my attacker as well. So when I was able, when I found when I found myself financially solvent and physically capable of going for this journey, I did that with my mother. And uh, growing up as a little you know back home, I saw my dad perform hard three times, but my mom sacrificed for us. And that time I, I, I made a promise that if I ever get a chance to go to Mecca, I will take my mother with me. Because I saw when my dad went and she sacrificed for her, for us. Took care of the all eight of you and dad's doing the pilgrimage. Right. So she sacrificed for us. And I thought I would take over this challenge and I will take her to Mecca. That's what I did in 2009. We went together to Mecca. I spent uh, a month, prayed every day, 14 to 15 hours per day. And um, uh, it was a wonderful memory, uh, you know, going to going to Mecca and pray together, and uh, walking on the street of Mecca at uh, you know two a.m. in the morning, where thousands of you know pilgrims walking next to you. All the you know shops are open, food restaurants are open, people are eating, sitting next to the road, and going for prayer. It was a fascinating experience. Um, until says like five five thirty we prayed a.m. five thirty a.m. we prayed, then came back to the hotel room just for tech just for taking a nap for a couple of hours and then again you go around eleven a.m. stay there in the in the prayer area pray until you know uh, four four five p.m. then come back for a little break again goes it was full of prayer and asking for forgiveness for myself and also asking for guidance asking for strength and asking for Forgiveness for others that, you know, all the pain and suffering happening in this world, you know, uh, God have mercy on those people, forgive them, help them. So it was asking for strength, guidance, forgiveness for me and for others as well. And um, I kept thinking about the moment I was shot. I thought about my shooter, Mark Struman, sitting on death row waiting to die. And I realized that he's a human being too. Sitting on death row for the last nine years, you know, mentally, psychologically, he's already dead. He's just sitting there to die physically. And I, I saw myself in a situation that if I were him, what would I expect from the rest of the world? Yes, there is no doubt about that. He committed a heinous crime. But now he's locked up and he's going to die. I was in a situation like that nine years back where I begged God to give me a chance to live. I'm sure he's asking the same thing right now in silence, in a, in a death row. I felt very much empathetic for him, and I thought that uh, by executing him, we would simply lose a human life without dealing with the root cause. And uh, instead of hating him, I saw him as a human being like me too, and not just as a killer. I saw him as a victim too. And uh, I truly believed that if he was given a second chance, he might become a better human being and he might be able to contribute to society in a positive way.
I mean, I suffered terribly, but I did not see any value in him suffering as well. And from Mecca, this idea came to my mind that I had a promise to God I would do good things with my life. What have I done so far? Yes, I have done well, but who benefited? It's only me. So now it's time to get back to the world and do something for others and keep my promise. So I came back from Mecca as a changed person, and I thought about my shooter, and I thought, I have to do the next right thing to save his life. I had no knowledge about campaigning. I had no knowledge about how to work as a peace activist, as a human rights activist. So what I did, I started joining events in Dallas, wherever there was a peace active, peace events, uh, interfaith event. I just sat in the back and I saw people, how they talk, what they do, what is the language, you know, and what is the message they try to, you know, pass. So again, another training for me, sitting at the back, meeting people, and then slowly I started preparing myself that I have to come into public, say I, I forgive my shooter, and now I need your support to help this human's life from death row. And that's how I started. And what was the next step after that? So what, what did you actually do to try to make that change and, and make that happen? I, I found out... Um, Next to my house, uh, there's an university called Southern Methodist University, and I met a professor there, a um, history professor who, uh, who, um, who was chairperson of Amnesty International three times, Dr. Rick Halperin. I met him, and I explained my intention. And at the beginning, he, he tested me. He said, why you are trying to do this? Is it, some, is it a thought came into your mind? And once you face toughness, you just run away. It's an uphill battle. It never happened in the state of Texas that you know a death row inmate was pardoned because the victims came forward. So maybe most likely you will you will lose the battle. And my response was, if we don't try, we would lose hundred percent. But if we try, at least we know we tried our best. And I know this is an uphill battle, but the the end result is not in our hand. There is someone who controls everything. We, you and I only can give a try without worrying what is the end result. So let's do it. I need your support. So he came on board and then another gentleman named Hadi Jawad, who is a 37 years veteran in this field, peace activist, human rights, he came on board and uh, we reached out to the local newspaper, Dallas Morning News, and we explained our you know, our, our plan that this is what we are going to do to save this person's life from death row. And we would like to meet you guys to spread our message. And Dallas Morning News gave us a, you know, gave us a meeting for 45 minutes, which ended up hour and a half. They were extremely moved. After our meeting the next day, Dallas Morning News editorial put a big, big piece. And then the ripple, ripple effect started. And then I wrote an article. It was published in Dallas Morning News. Then USA Today picked up, MSNBC picked up, and slowly a lot of national, international media, they picked up. And um, working with uh, Amnesty International, a Muslim local uh, nonprofit called Muslim Legal Fund of America, they came, they came on board, supported my campaign, also helped me financially for some of the troubles here and there. So a lot of people came on board, Muslims, Jewish, Hindus, atheists, Christian, they all came on board because they saw the power of this of this you know campaign. It's not only just saving a human life, but it is also bringing people together 
whatever differences we have. So a lot of people locally, nationally, internationally came on board, support my campaign. And then another nonprofit called Reprieve, it's a London-based nonprofit, supported my campaign. And we took our campaign to the European Union Parliament and German Parliament. And I was invited to give a talk and uh, you know gain more support. Also went to the headquarters of Lundbeck, the lethal injection manufacturer in Denmark. And we were able to convince them to urge the governor of Texas not to use their product to kill human beings. And after our visit, Lundbeck announced they would stop supplying this drug to the U.S. prisons that carry out executions. What else would they use it for, like animal animal stuff? Or what would they, what did they use it for? Any idea? It, it, the name of the medicine is uh, pentobarbital. It's one of the three cocktails they use in execution. Uh so this is the first first medicine, the, the first drug they, they push into human body to put them into deep sleep. That is that if the medicine is not strong enough, people may wake up during these executions. It's a very powerful, well-tested, you know, a drug the U.S. prisons use for execution. So I, um, the folks from Reprieve and I went together and we kind of uh, make them a little bit of guilty that there is no execution in Denmark. Mm. But you guys... You know, supplying you're supplying this drug to U.S. prisons, which they use it for execution. It's a double standard, so you, you cannot do that. So the thing that's coming into my brain right now is when you hit rock bottom, you had nobody advocating for you, and you didn't know how to advocate for yourself. No, not at all. Yet, you take that experience and become an advocate for everyone else. Uh, including the person that put you in that hospital. Um, and there's just something extremely inspirational, poetic, motivating to that concept and that idea of, of service. And I just wonder if all of us took that approach. Um, when we see someone in need, can we serve them? Um, and it's just a, it's an amazing experience because the reality is, and, and I'm even thinking about it like myself, like where was I when that happened to you? And I think that's something we should all be thinking about is like, where were we? Um, and none of us are bigger than trying to help somebody when something tragic happens. And it shouldn't just be the big stories that we see on the news. You know, what's happening when you open up a newspaper for the few people that open up a newspaper and there's a eulogy. Uh, and what are we doing to serve that person? So that that's like that's what's hitting me. I'm sure different people take have different takeaways, but that's how I'm sort of thinking about it. And so I, I just wanted to express that to you. Um, the other thing that I just want to pull back on uh, is that you actually developed a relationship with the shooter. Um, and so once again, it's one thing to say, "All right, I'm gonna try to be noble and help save his life." It's a whole nother to take another step and actually try to cultivate a relationship. Can you just walk us through what that was like? I mean, while running this campaign, I also thought about that, um, that my shooter should know what, you know, his victims are doing outside and also try to build a relationship with him because we don't know what would be the outcome of this campaign. But what is the next right thing to do at that moment? Let this person feel that there are people who has the right to hate him they care and they love him. That is powerful. So through his lawyer, he came to know about this campaign and uh, 
I was told by his lawyer that he was deeply touched and moved by our efforts. This was not something he expected from Muslim. He hated Muslims and he wanted to kill them as many as he could. But now the Muslims are coming forward with the help of Jewish Christians, Hindus and atheists to rally, I mean, to save a person like him. It, it was a transformative moment for him as well that, wow, I mean, I caused so much pain and now they're showing their love and compassion for me. What did that do for you? It gave me a huge satisfaction that this is what I was taught. I had the option to hate him. I had the option to completely ignore him. But I didn't do that. Whatever I was taught, I was able to show that in real life. And uh, I hoped also that it will set a new narrative. People will take a new narrative from from this story to you know to work for a world you know based on mutual respect and dignity that was my hope that even if we fail to save this person's life but this story will set a new narrative and uh, it will help people to come together despite differences and he took notice he in a statement he said that uh, in a free world I was free but I was locked up in a prison inside myself because of the hate I carried in my heart. It is due to Rachel's message of forgiveness. I'm more content now than I have ever been. It's a powerful quote. I mean, if you think, you know, deeply, when he was, he was free in the free world, he was locked up inside. But when he went to the prison in a death row, he was physically locked up, but mentally, emotionally, he was free. That's like one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And coming from somebody who we deem to be a monster, yep. there's just unbelievable irony in that. I don't even know if irony is the right word. It's poetic. Poetic. I mean, there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of people in this free world. Yes, they're free physically, but mentally they are locked up because there is ignorance in their heart, there is hate in their heart, and even though they're free, but they're not walking as a free human being. And the people we think about the monsters behind bars in death row they're physically locked up but many of them are capable of you know leading a life what we think of we dreamed of living in this world as a free human being all right so i'm just gonna sort of speed us up because we've been talking for a while and i'm just we could talk all day this is just so powerful and amazing and i'm just so fortunate feel so fortunate that we bumped into each other um so he ends up you 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 don't end up getting them to stop the execution. Uh and by the way, I keep saying him. I'm so conscious of that you use his name. Um and I think that's such a conscious intentional point on on your part because it'd be so easy to just say it's him, but you say it's Mark and I think the humanization of that is is remarkable as well. But they don't save Mark. Um you're not able to save Mark. So he's executed. Um, and then just walk me through what you're up to now. Uh, and, and, you know, I would love for you to share also where people can find you, learn about you, uh, if they want to connect with you. I just want to give you a platform to promote. You've got a book, which you gave to me the other day with perfect calligraphy, um, uh, that I haven't read yet, but I look forward to reading. So I would love for people to just get to know you better, uh, because I think we only really scratched the surface, even though I felt like we went really deep. Uh, I, there's so much more that you have to share with the world. And I just feel so fortunate that I was able to spend the last 
last hour and a half, two hours talking with you. And then we also talked for like 30 minutes the other day. And once again, I, if I hadn't had, had to get home to my kids, I probably would have stayed there and listened to you forever. Um, so A, thanks for sharing your story. And B, let people know what you're up to now and, and where they can learn more about you. Sure. Um, let me just take one step back real quick. Uh, before Mark was executed, he wrote a long letter to me. Well, yeah, I would like to just read one paragraph from there that he said, uh, my stepfather taught me some lessons that I should have never learned. I have unlearned some of them and I'm still working on some of them. I don't know who your parents were, but it is obvious they're wonderful people to lead you to act this way to someone you have every right to hate. And that was one of you know, Mark's letter. Uh, Sorry, I just got chills. I don't know if people are listening to this, felt that. But once again, the the message compared to the messenger, like how often we just listen to the messenger and don't think about the message. It's it's so moving. So unfortunately, he was executed. uh, But the tremendous support and positive energy I received from all over the world inspired me to establish a nonprofit called World Without Hate. And uh, you can find us at www.worldwithouthate.org um, to uh, keep my journey going on and also to keep inspiring people to be compassionate, empathetic, understanding, accepting, and forgiving. So uh, this is a nonprofit, and uh, our core mission is to build a better world. And we can do it by two steps. Uh, one is uh, healthy human development and by making more human connections. And by practicing these five human qualities, compassion, acceptance, empathy, understanding, and forgiveness, we can build a better world for us and for our next generations. So besides working in IT full-time, I travel the world and uh, share my story and uh, talk about the transformative power of mercy and forgiveness. And uh, it helps and also empowering people to, to take time from learn, to learn from one another uh, instead of stereotypes and labels society has imposed. And uh, one thing I always share people uh, from my experience that once you get to know the other, it is hard for you to hate them. Mark hated me when he didn't know me, but in the end, he called me brother and said he loved me in a phone conversation. Let's end with that. Um, social media, are you guys active on social media? Where can people find you? Um, just share all that good stuff. Yes, we are also in Facebook, uh, World Without Hate. We are also in uh, in Twitter. Our handler is WWH. Sorry, at, at, at WWH Forgive. And I'll put it in the show notes so we'll make sure that people know exactly where they can find you on Twitter. Uh, Ray, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, for those who want to follow me, they can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. On that Instagram, we have intentional uh, underscore performers uh, there. Um, and then we have our website, intentionalperformers.com, where you can download this episode, which you already have, or download future episodes. Uh, but I just, once again, want to thank you for your time. Um, it's one thing to have a story. It's a whole other thing to let that story then lead to impact. And I think a lot of people have stories, but they don't necessarily know how to then become advocates. And that journey for you has been fascinating and interesting. And um, the notion of you going toward hard things in life is something I think we can all take away. Um, but 
there's just a ton of gems in this conversation. And so I'm just really grateful and uh, appreciative. And I look forward to many more conversations with you. And I'm sure we'll uh, continue to stay connected and find ways to maybe collaborate and do some things. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I believe Nelson Mandela's theory. If you want to... If you want to make a positive impact in this world, you have to find ways to work with your enemies. You just cannot hate your enemy, and you could, and you, you, you think that you know this world would be a better place because you are not working with your enemy. You should find ways to work with the people they put you down or they you know cause pain and suffering in your life. Otherwise, you cannot move forward. So I thought that is the right thing to do.